welcome to episode 101 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Ed Vasey. I feel 101. <laughs> and I'm also the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. Today, we're going to be talking about the transformation of the Manchester Museum that is opening on the 18th of February after a £15 million overhaul. The museum is over 130 years old and one of our largest university museums housed in a neo-Gothic building designed by Alfred Waterhouse. One of the new highlights is a new South Asia gallery opening in partnership with the British Museum that is the first permanent gallery in the UK dedicated to the community's experiences and histories of the South Asian diaspora. Manchester Museum's director, Esme Ward, was appointed in 2018 and is the first woman in the museum's history to hold the role. She is committed to creating a more inclusive, caring and imaginative museum and we're delighted to have her with us today. Hello Esme. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Now this massive and expensive transformation is all about, well we're not allowed to use the phrase levelling up anymore, but it's... It's about, let's put it a different way, it's about transforming the cultural scene in Manchester because you set out to put Manchester's communities, particularly its South Asian and Chinese communities, at the core of the museum's programming. It's going to make the Manchester Museum a truly inclusive museum. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so I think for me, this is all about actually us becoming the museum, the city and its people really need. Um, and, and how might we do that? So that commitment to inclusion is absolutely at the heart of this. Manchester, as I'm, I'm sure many of you know, is a hyper-diverse city. I think last time that I, I heard there were around 200 languages spoken in the city. So the, the, the whole project, the transformation, does include the things you expect. So there is a, a new entrance, there's new lots of toilets, new cafe, all, <laughs> all of that. Um, important things, the loo, the brew and the view. Um, but also a new exhibition hall, which for us really is a playground to really showcase big ideas, research extraordinary collections on a scale and ambition we've never been able to. A Chinese culture gallery, the South Asia gallery you've already mentioned, which I'll talk about a little bit more because it's a co-curation on a pretty epic scale, um, doing it very differently. Also a belonging gallery, the first gallery you'll come to, which is really exploring ideas around inclusion and belonging. And I guess all of this is really around us meeting the mission of the museum, which hasn't changed for quite a while now. So the mission of the museum is to build understanding between cultures and a more sustainable world. Because anyone who doesn't know Manchester Museum, it's one of those wonderful kind of encyclopedic museums where you have both natural sciences and human cultures all under one roof. And we even have live animals to boot. So um, it, it really is a both a local and global uh, global museum. Hold on, live animals. I know. No, I was live that. animals. <laughs> I know what? live animals. So um, talk us we, through the live animals. Oh, where to start with the live have animals? You've got a so, petting zoo in the middle of the museum. What's going on? No, not a petting zoo, but we have a vivarium. We, in fact, we are the only place in the world where you will be able to see, for example, the Panamanian harlequin frog. So we are... I have been looking, I have been looking for a place to see the Panamanian 
the Panamanian what? Harlequin. Well, Panamanian <laughs> Harlequin frog. I'm going to give you the Latin name, the Atelopus varius. Um, oh. and, and actually we have a, special, a particular specialism in amphibians from South America, so Costa Rica, Panama, and we work really closely. We do a lot of work in across South America, so you get to see conservation in action. We run field courses, and we are what's called the safety net population for this frog in Panama, which actually is critically endangered. So very excitingly, our frogs actually had a really good lockdown. Um, uh, they bred. This is amazing. I'm, <laughs> this has gone completely unexpected. But to tell me as well, when you hmm. sort of described the Manchester Museum just now, I mean, it sounded like your absolutely classic, in terms of its roots, classic mm. Victorian museum, a kind of... Mm. Uh, you know, almost a kind of hoarder's delight, if I can put it that way. Yeah, but with eclectic all, collection. Absolutely, and with all the complexity that brings. So, um, you know, absolutely born of empire. It's always been since this doors opened here in this. Uh, wonderfully bonkers uh, Waterhouse Gothic building. Um, uh, doors opened in 1888. It has, since that time, been part of the University of Manchester. So this kind of commitment to teaching and uh, learning has been in its DNA from the very earliest moment. So that fascination in the 20s, particularly around Egyptology, um, you know, in, in sort of 1910, 1920s, it's grown and grown and grown. So the origins came from the Manchester Natural History Society. Tell me, the other interesting thing is obviously you have returned, returned some of these objects. You talk, talked about it, about the legacy of empire. You've returned yeah. ceremonial items to Aboriginal mm -hmm. groups. I mean, restitution mm -hmm. is a big issue. I'm chair of the mm -hmm. Parthenon project, which is a campaign mm -hmm. to return the Parthenon sculptures to Greece. So my view on this issue is that actually restitution, rethinking restitution, is, is something that museums, it, it speaks to us, for me, about the future of museums, actually. So we talk a lot uh, here about what it means to build an ethics of care. So in, in museums, we know how to care for collections. We, we, we clearly do. But actually, we're also interested, in if, you, if you then extend that thinking and that care to people and beliefs and ideas and relationships, you think through differently about your responsibility to and relationship to those collections. And, and the reality in museums, ours included, is that very often the people most intimately connected to our collections are those who are most distant, whether they are within source communities, whether they are often diaspora communities as well. So we were approached by an extraordinary organisation called AATSIS, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, who were running a big project for about the return of cultural heritage to Aboriginal communities. And um, the minute they got in touch with us, we started to build those relationships to find out more, to be very proactive in researching the provenance of our collections further. And it became really apparent very, very quickly that this material uh, was not given. And so together with them, we built the case for return and we went to the university board uh, when we said very clearly, we, will, we want to unconditionally 
return this material. We want to put no conditions whatsoever on its return. Uh, and it was unanimously approved by the board. Partly, I feel, because they are very conscious that they are educating the next generation of global citizens. Also, because the case was so strongly made. But then finally, really, the university has a not only commitment to teaching and research, but a very strong commitment to social responsibility. And so there was a sense of this is what a socially responsible museum does. And for me, having had that experience of returning that material, the thing that really struck me is so often repatriation is framed as loss. And for me, it is a fundamental misunderstanding of the realities of those returns. So what I've, I've experienced and encountered is actually uh, gains. So we have gained in insight, in new understanding, uh, new research. So we have a research programme which is called After Repatriation, looking at what the impact of the return has been, both on the cultural revitalisation within those communities, but also for us as a museum. We have new relationships that we've built. We are just in the midst of a really extraordinary partnership with the Noongar people in Western Australia, where our botanical collections are helping them revegetate land. In, in so many ways, we have built on all of these relationships. And out of a collection of 3,091 objects from Australia, we have returned 43. And we have, there have been no floodgates. And we have a new curator of Indigenous perspectives who on the back of that work is building relationships more proactively with Indigenous communities all over the world. And we are rethinking our perspectives on our own collections. Uh, and we also finally have a curator of living cultures who is taking a much more proactive approach to engaging not just source communities, but the people of Manchester in conversations about restitution, doing a bit more thinking in public about this, actually, um, starting to really understand what people here think and what they want. Which brings us on now to the belonging gallery, which is a mm. sort of new concept. Is that where you've got this amazing 17-metre mural by the Singh twins? No, that's in the New South Asia gallery. The Singh twins work is, is one of the first things you will see when you come into the New South Asia gallery. And it's really setting a tone. So anyone who knows their work, um, even if you don't, it's based on Indian miniature painting. The level of detail is, is extraordinary. And what they're doing is, in their words, they are um, essentially doing an emotional map of South Asia from a very particular British Asian perspective. And so what you'll do is you will go from riches to rags to riches. So the riches is um, pre-empire, the riches of India, Mother India. Then you will go to rags, which is absolutely about colonial extraction uh, and about the um, empire partition. And then you will go again to riches, which is starting to think about diasporan experience contributions. So that's setting a tone. And in the heart of all of that, there will be a screen where you will have a wonderful uh, image of the South Asia Gallery 
in six different languages. So you will start to get a sense that you're in a very different kind of space. What we really want is for this to be a space for emotional connection. So we actually have a collective uh, they're called the South Asia Gallery Collective. It's 30 people. They're not museum people. And they are the curators. They are the co-curators of this gallery. And so what you will have is you will have personal stories. You will have um, different stories they wanted to uncover. And at the heart of the gallery is a performance space where you will have an immersive filmic performance space with technology I don't completely understand. So you will be feeling very much immersed. And what we really want throughout the gallery is for you to have this sense of diasporan experience and contribution, but also this is British history. But just tell us a bit about the twins, because they're two young, identical women, aren't they, who do a lot of fashion stuff? Yeah, so the twins are, um, uh, so they're British um, Punjabi artists. Um, they did wonderful, wonderful work called Slaves of Fashion. And actually, what, what I love about their work is they really grapple with the complexity of our world. So they are interested in, um, they aren't shying away from the colonial legacy and they are storytellers, incredible storytellers. And, and they were actually, even before we commissioned them to do the work, they were part of our collective. Talk to us about health and well-being because you are, yes, uh, quite rightly, very focused on the role that the arts can play in health and well-being. And I helped set up the National Academy for Social Prescribing when it was... Um, which is now sort of chugging along. Uh, I was very keen to get the Department of Health to take the arts seriously, although it is a bit of an uphill struggle. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's a really big part of, um, of, of my life, actually, and the way I've ended up in a role like this. And then when Greater Manchester had devolved healthcare funding, so when devolution happened, I was seconded to the public health team in uh, Greater Manchester to look at how you embed arts and culture within public health. Um, and I was particularly focused on ageing and creative ageing because the potential of culture and museums as places to be connected to each other is extraordinary. Uh, and now it's embedded in what the museum does, but also more widely, I am co-chair of the Culture, Health and Wellbeing Alliance, which is a national body. For the last particularly three to four years, that sense of uh, our museums, um, both at hopefully the hearts of their communities, but also as spaces to really both be creative, but also gain a sense of perspective to bring generations together um, is, is, is really palpable, I think. And actually throughout the pandemic, we, um, we were open because we are a museum, but we're also a registered college for uh, an extraordinary charity called Pink College, which is for neurodivergent 16 to 25 year olds. So we are their college day in, day out. And the reality of working with those young people is that we really started to understand them. We've built a therapy room embedded within the museum and the young people's mental health coordinator for Greater Manchester is based within that therapy space. Um, and part of this is thinking again about how do we become the museum that this city might need? 
And sadly, uh, young people and their mental health is, um, is one of the things we are, are wanting to really think through and what role the museum can play. I think museums are part of the public health workforce. We don't necessarily describe ourselves in those ways. So we have all sorts of shared roles. Um, we are just recruiting a new social justice manager who will be leading over the next five years our work on family poverty and social mobility in and across Manchester. We will be having a wonderful new breakfast club for local families in the museum. Of course we will, that's just as being a good neighbour. Um, but we also are a museum with a mission to build a more sustainable world. And I suppose all of this is us thinking through what are museums for? And one final um, sort of point just on the health and wellbeing. So our main exhibition is called Golden Mummies of Egypt and uh, it's extraordinary Greco-Roman Egyptian material. Um, it's, it's toured, we toured it all over America and China. It's coming back to Manchester, delighted it's there, but it's about ideas around the afterlife and us thinking differently and maybe a little more spiritually around the material we hold. And during lockdown, uh, our curator of Egyptology, Campbell Price, did a sort of Zoom thing, you know, a kind of uh, ask me questions, any obscure questions about Egyptology. He got hundreds and hundreds of people every week. And he rung me halfway through one of, um, uh, about two months in and said, you know, everybody just wants to talk to me about death and mourning. <laughs> That's all they want to talk about. But actually on the back of that, he said, this is really interesting. There is a need for people to discuss this. Mm. So we now have a programme to have and to heal and we take ancient Egyptian material out to care homes um, to have no. conversations. It sounds really grim, but actually it's beautiful. And we have conversations with people about mourning, uh, with residents, with caregivers, with um, families. Um, and they use this material to actually have really important conversations about the future that maybe they wouldn't have if they were all just sat in a room together. It unlocks something powerful, I think. That's amazing. So in terms of your your uh, impact on creative ageing, if you like, I mean, so so how are you seeing the museum in that context? Because loneliness, you know, amongst old people is a huge problem in cities, isn't it? Oh, it really is. It really is. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that um, social connectedness mm -hmm. above anything else, above any any medication, you name it, is the thing that makes yep. the biggest difference to yep. not just the quantity of our life but the, absolutely the quality uh, so Manchester you I, I don't know whether you know is the world's um, one of the world's first age-friendly cities and so I'm actually the strategic lead for culture in relation to aging in Greater Manchester and what that means is that you go to a meeting and I'm there wearing a culture hat on representing arts and culture in Greater Manchester and next to me there'll be somebody from housing and someone from health uh, and someone from, you know, policing, and all of us together work out how do we make this the best place to grow older. So we have a programme called Grey on Green, um, which is bringing older environmental activists and younger environmental activists together to learn from each other, rather than make assumptions that all the burden is on young people. And, yeah. and you know, that all, and, and for me, this is, this is the heart of it, is, is doing all of that. So we, everything from grandparenting programs through to, um, uh, you know, just having warm spaces um, throughout the museum. These are the things we can just 
do to really encourage people to come here. And Manchester has a programme called Culture Champions, which is extraordinary. It's been going for over a decade. And it's where older people who are in the museum, in other parts of the city's cultural organisations, they run programmes for their peers. And it's fantastic because it's on their terms. Well, that is very cheering because so many, like, you know, you take broadcasters today mm. and they're so mm -hmm. busy chasing young audiences. Yeah. You know, they do anything to get young audiences who aren't particularly interested in watching telly mm. anymore mm. anyway. Mm. And they'll sort of throw away all the things that mm. older people love. It's very, it's, it's very mm. interesting what you're doing. Especially as I'm a bit older, I'm loving listening about this. <laughs> well, do you know what's really great? I mean, I don't know if it's great or not, but it's slightly, um, everybody takes a deep in, intake of breath. Is um, uh, I, I worked on Manchester becoming the uh, age-friendly city and uh, we all had conversations. Like, what does it mean, older people? What, what mm. does that mean? What does that look like? Any ideas where um, at what age you're classed as an older person in terms of the World Health Organization? Any thoughts? Uh, 55. Spot on. 55 oh. and in fact it may even now be over 50 um so um you know i think that sense of you know we're we're, we're not in the we're not talking virulin here um and in <laughs> fact there's a there's a really wonderful and if we are talking virulin that's fine too um but there's a really wonderful club night in manchester called my generation which is club night for uh older people i'll, I'll be honest maybe uh, i think some people think we're we're I'm, I'm too obsessed about this and maybe i am but paying a real attention, one of my bugbears in museums is seating. Yes. So um, actually, one of the things I'm really proud of across the museum is our attentiveness to really great age-friendly seating. And it really matters. Museums are hard on the feet. Um, and actually, the original Waterhouse building had wonderful, integrated, really inclusive, accessible seating. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of the sleek gallery benches that uh, are almost impossible to get off. So, and it sounds a small thing, but actually all of these, whether it's around the prayer space we've developed, whether it's around an extraordinary changing places toilet that was um, designed by one of our volunteers and his team of carers, or whether it's around the seating. These are the things, in addition to the wonderful exhibitions, these are the things that can make people feel they belong. Well, a huge good luck. It's opening on the 18th of February, is that right? It opens on the 18th of February. Um, and to be frank, it is no fun running a museum without visitors. Wow. So um, uh, I cannot tell you how much we are looking forward to those visitors being at the heart of the museum again. I'm just wondering slightly when you get any time to sleep because your remit is so enormous. You're basically looking after the whole of Manchester through this museum. We've not even talked about research. I could, I could honestly, research and teaching embedded everywhere. I sort of think it's a, the museum I know, one of the things I love about it is um, in World War I, it became the school for the city. And, and literally overnight, curators became the teachers. And I think it's hardwired in the institution. So we, we, we do so much teaching and research at all levels. You know, I mean, people, I, we, we had a small event here, a bit of a sneak peek with some community leaders last night. And I don't think there's one of them in the room that told me they hadn't essentially been dragged on some school trip um, to this museum. We have the oldest museum education service in the country. Um, we're really, really proud of that. And I think for me, 
that's museums, that's what they're for. They are incredible places where the world, your world can grow bigger and you can really, you know, uh, I love the word grapple, but kind of you could try and understand this world we're in. Um, and if we're really successful, you can build empathy and understanding for each other and this world. So that's what we're for. Well, I think Manchester is very lucky to have you. You're such an enthusiast for the role of culture, as a, which we love on this podcast. We love all that. So, so we do. Yeah. Good. Brilliant. Thank you so much, okay. Ethne. That was wonderful. Absolute pleasure. And um, come and see us. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Thank okay. you very, very much. Brilliant. Thank you, Absolute Ethne. pleasure. Just before we go, if you can get your hands on tickets, do try and go and see The Sleeping Beauty at the Royal Opera House. It runs until the 4th of March and this production of Marius Petipa's 19th century classic, restaged in 2006, is absolutely exquisite with its sumptuous Oliver Messel designs and sets. I saw it a couple of nights ago with Francesca Howard as Princess Aurora and Alexander Campbell as Prince Florimond. I was slightly quailing at the thought of three hours of ballet, but the quality of the dancing was such an extraordinary and dazzling display of strength and beauty that we were all riveted from start to finish. It is a once in a lifetime chance to see ballet of this standard at the Royal Opera House. So do go if you possibly can. There's lots coming up in the next few weeks. We've got the Oscar nominations. We've got Donatello at the V&A and also lots of wonderful theatre. On that note, we're going to be talking to Dominic Cook next week. He's the fated theatre, film and television director, the former artistic director of the Royal Court. He's directing Euripides' Medea, starring Sophie Okonedo. It opens on the 10th of February at Soho Place, so tune into our podcast to hear all about it. As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com. You'll find the latest digital edition of the magazine there, as well as our sister podcast, House Guest, Carol Annette, who talks to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback, so we want to hear from you. If there's something you'd like to hear as profiling, please leave a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week.